Straight out of Philly, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from Palm Beach Atlantic University. What exactly is the relationship between the mind and the brain? Can scientifically studying spiritual experiences give us any insight into the mind-body problem? If we look at near-death experiences, mediums, and reincarnation, will we see evidence that the mind is more than the brain? Or will considering spiritual experiences make me look like a crazy person? In order to figure this out, I decided to have a chat with a psychiatrist named Alexander Moreira Almeida. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my Ko-fi account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many different ways. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear in the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Ready or not, here's Alex and I getting all spiritual. Enjoy. So, Alexander, welcome to the show. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Hi. Uh, thank you for having me here. It's a great pleasure. I'm, I'm from Brazil. I'm an associate professor of psychiatry at the Federal University of Juiz de Fora in Brazil. I, currently, I'm also the chair of the section in spirituality and psychiatry of the Latin America Psychiatric Association and the former chair of the section in spirituality of psychiatry of the World Psychiatric Association. I'm, I was trained in medical school. Since medical school, almost 30 years ago, I started to be interested in the study, scientific study of spirituality and connection with health and science. After that, I took my residence in psychiatry. I did a PhD in health sciences, investigating mental health of spiritist mediums. And after that, I went to Duke University in the U.S. to do a postdoctoral fellowship with Harold Koenig in spirituality and health. And the last 15 years, I've been uh, associate professor of psychiatry in Juiz de Fora. Okay, so you've done a lot of different stuff. And I want to touch on some of these different themes. So one of them is you're studying spiritual experience. So to help everyone understand what you're up to, we just need to you know, kind of define some terms here. So let's start with spirituality. Like, what is spirituality? Well, this is a very tricky question, many different definitions throughout time. Yeah. But in, in line with different other, several other researchers in this field, we define spirituality as the relationship or contact with a transcendent reality that is considered sacred, the ultimate truth, truth or reality. So the, the core idea of spirituality would be the transcendental aspect of reality. Okay, so then the next thing we need to define is spiritual experience. So what is a spiritual experience? So this would be experience of contact with this transcendent realm. And these experiences are often considered transformative and sacred. Okay, so now I would imagine there's going to be a lot of different challenges when it comes to empirically studying spiritual experiences. So tell me about some of the different challenges related to just defining the relationship between the mind and the brain. And then how would you propose to overcome these kind of challenges? Yeah, one of the first challenges is exactly to understand the relationship between of these spiritual experiences and mental health, because sometimes they can be very similar to uh, mental disorder symptoms. And But uh, usually, as we have shown and found in many different studies, that uh, most spiritual experiences are not related to mental disorders. This is one problem. But the second very important issue is what is the what is mind and how does it relate to the brain? 
So this has been one of the most challenging issues in philosophy and science in the last at least two millennium. Mm -hmm. And uh, the problem is that it's not solved yet. However, there are many prejudices, even academic environment, that considered, for example, uh, that uh, it has been a settled debate, for example, that we know for sure that mind is a product of brain electrical chemical activity. Mm -hmm. However, this is not uh, yet the case. But what we have proposed, actually, is a rigorous and open-minded approach to understand the mind-brain relationship. And for that, we think that spiritual experiences could be crucial in this discussion, exactly because spiritual experiences uh, claim, at least in principle, to be in touch with some transcendental, non-physical aspect of human beings of, or of reality. So the idea is to approach this experience with an open mind, but at the same time, a very rigorous methodological sound way. Okay, so I want to make sure I'm, I'm following what you're up to. So if I if if you're saying like, hey, a bunch of people want to claim the mind and the brain are the same thing, well, how would I look at figuring out if there's more to the story? Like if there, if there is some kind of case where the the mind does transcend the brain, and so that's where the spiritual experience stuff is going to come in, trying to look at some of these different cases, still rigorously empirically investigating them, but going some of these might push in one direction or the other, saying maybe the mind's not identical to the brain, or maybe it is. Is this, is this kind of the big idea? Yeah, exactly. That, that's the point. Because sometimes it's assumed principle that uh, uh, everything that exists is related to physical forces mm -hmm. or particles. That's called physicalism. Yeah. Of course, physicalism is a metaphysical stance that is respectable, but it's not, not only... It's not the only possibility. There are right. many different other possibilities, and science should be open to these different possibilities. And another possibility, for example, is that mind, consciousness, could be another irreducible component of the universe. Mm -hmm. For example, Thomas Nagel called this a kind of enlarged naturalism. Right. So yeah. we could have an enlarged view of nature that could include matter, but also mind and consciousness. So we could take this in consideration. Perhaps spiritual experiences are related to some of these aspects of mind. Okay, so I want to get into some of this now. So there's this common stigma that spiritual experiences are related to mental disorders. So basically, just only crazy people are going to have spiritual experiences. Is this something that you have been able to confirm in your research, or, is, or have things gone completely differently? Yeah, this is a, a very important point, because especially if you start from a perspective, or from a physicalist perspective, that everything that exists is matter uh, and things like that. So as spiritual real, spiritual experiences refer usually to some kind of transcendental reality, it must be explained away in some other reductionist perspective. And one of them is that they are related only to mental disorders, for example. Mm -hmm. And we have been involved in these studies for about 25 years, investigating people who have spiritual, different sorts of spiritual experiences. And these spiritual experiences quite often are, in principle, similar to psychotic experience. For example, they hear a voice that can see things, that mm. can feel external influence in their minds and in their bodies. However, when investigate them in depth 
And even using structured psychiatric interviews, we can see that they are different. These are different experiences. So actually found that, but also several other researchers have found that usually people who have this deep spiritual experiences tend to be actually healthier than the general population. Okay, and so this is not just you just coming up with stuff. You're talking about like a network of researchers who are finding these same conclusions. Yeah, definitely. Uh, now, nowadays, it's quite common knowledge in in, in its state of the art in mm-hmm. study of spiritual study of spiritual experiences. Uh, even the ICD, the International Classification of Disease, we were part of the task force for the ICD-11. Exactly, we worked the, on, on presenting the criteria to help in these distinctions. Okay, so even coming up with a criteria, you're, like you're, yeah, exactly, you're, you guys are a part of that. That's exactly. interesting. Okay, so now let's look, look. Let's look at some of these cases here. So one of the things you've talked about in your research are deep meditative states. Now, as you're studying people who are in these kind of deep meditative states, have you been able to find like the God spot in the brain? And you might want to tell us like kind of what the God spot is as well. Okay, yeah. Uh, the God spot was an idea that was quite popular a few years ago. The idea that there is a specific brain region, mm-hmm. usually temporal lobe, that is responsible for generating spiritual experience. The idea is there to be just a, a some certain sort of brain activation, some specific part of the brain that will generate the experience of God or other spiritual experiences. However, other researchers, and we also have been involved in functional neuroimaging uh, studies, we have found that spiritual experiences are complex, actually, and is a multidimensional phenomena related to several different brain areas uh, in a different uh, function. So it's quite clear nowadays that there is not a specific spot in the brain that is related to to, to spiritual experiences. And also, it's also important to be aware of the fallacy of conflating association with causation. Mm-hmm. It's not because we find an association between a certain brain area, for example, temporal lobe, and some experience like out-of-body experience. It doesn't mean that out-of-body experience is nothing but an activation of temporal lobe. For example, right. I can see you now, and I'm activating now my occipital lobe. Mm-hmm. It, does not, it does not mean that your image is nothing more right. than the brain activation of yeah, the occipital yeah. yeah. I think we need to be very aware of this. I think, I think that's important because that would, that would be a really unfortunate result to be like, ah, well, I can see the spot in your brain where whenever you see Ryan, that, that part lights up. So therefore, you're never seeing Ryan. And that just seems like a ridiculous kind of conclusion. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that seems like a very important point to make. Um, so let's let's look at another kind of case study that you've you've investigated in your research. So a lot of people are interested in these near death experiences, and then one of my friends in Scotland, like she recently gave me a few books on the topic because she's been like really interested in this lately. And as I'm reading through these books and these studies, I'm curious what this kind of tells me about the relationship between the mind and the brain. So what do you think near death experiences tell us about the mind brain relation? Okay, so uh, near death experiences have been subject of a lot of studies nowadays. Actually, near-death experience has been one of the spiritual experiences most studied in mainstream science mm-hmm. nowadays. And one of the most challenging and interesting aspects of these experiences is that patients that are in, in severely damaging brain functioning situations, or even in no brain functioning, for example, in cardiac arrest, we know, for example, that after cardiac arrest, in a few seconds, the brain becomes, the electrical activity 
vanishes, the brain's mm. flat, the activity, electrical activity of the brain. So it was supposed that people should have no conscious experience at all because the brain is not working. Right. However, what happens is that patients that survive, that are resuscitated after near-death experience, they claim that they are they were aware during the cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. And they were aware of it. They had a lot of experience. For example, they, they had seen spiritual beings. They have had a, a deep insight about the meaning of life. They have met deceased relatives, for mm-hmm. example. And they sometimes also can even describe what happened around them, even the resuscitation procedures, during a period that they had no functioning brain. And in addition to that, after they recover, they are still sure that it was true, uh, actual experience, and also it it impacts their lives for many years. There are Mm -hmm. some follow-up studies following these people for eight years, and there is still a major impact in their lives. Mm -hmm. In addition to having a cardiac arrest, if you have a cardiac arrest, a recitate, and have a near-death experience, it impacts a lot. So all these experiences challenge in some way the more physicalist perspectives of the mind. Mm -hmm. That uh, And also, for example, these experiences are not related... Uh, it cannot be explained only by their previous beliefs because it independs of religious beliefs or even if people knew or not about near-death experiences and even the level of uh, hypoxia, that is, the decrease of oxygen. So neither of these uh, factors provide a good explanation for this. So this could be an, uh, an example of the possibility of the existence and activity of mind and consciousness beyond the brain. Okay, so if I'm in a state of cardiac arrest, it seems like my brain should not be functioning very well or at all. At all. all. Most studies show that about 20, 30 seconds after cardiac arrest, the brain is not working. It stopped working. So, okay, so that's what makes it so significant that these people are able to say, oh, I saw the procedures that were happening. Yeah. Uh, and I have these very vivid memories of all sorts of stuff that was happening during that time period of seeing deceased relatives or some kind of other other beings. Okay, because the brain shouldn't be functioning at all in this, uh, during that time period. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but of course, uh, we, we can imagine that people are just having imagination. They are sure. con- con- just confabulating this. However, there is what has been called allegedly veridical perceptions. Mm-hmm. What they describe have been, in several cases, confirmed by the medical staff, for example, that right. what happened. Okay, so that's uh, that's quite significant results. Okay, so I can see why this might push someone to go, maybe maybe the mind is not identical to the brain. And there is also another interesting aspect about this. When we have people having hallucinations because mm-hmm. of dysfunctional brain, we can see this a lot in ICUs, in confusional states. Okay. Usually people are very frightened, very disorganized, very disoriented. When, when they recovered... They first use they don't remember anything, mm-hmm. or when they remember, they think, "Oh, I was crazy." That is, n- it doesn't make sense. However, after near death experience, a completely different experience. It's it has meaning. Not only this, people say it's more real than the real life. Mm-hmm. They have this uh, a strong experience of reality of this, and even impacting their lives. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you've got clear. Well, maybe not super clear, but you've got s- some obvious criteria to distinguish between like a psychotic case 
and then uh, a case of near-death experience to go, they don't match up. So this can't just be a hallucination or a psychotic episode. Is yeah, that the, uh, the idea? Yeah, it, it, uh, there has been studies on this, yeah. uh, but uh, in general are quite different. The features are, of course, there are some over laps in some experiences but quite often is very different the experience mm-hmm. itself and also the after that how they yeah. relate to these experiences because i guess it's the after stuff that that that's what i found interesting when you're explaining this is yeah if if i had a, a psychotic episode and later on I'm like wow that was, was just a crazy moment in my life that's that yeah. over and done with but but you're saying most of these people they never say anything like that they don't they don't like kind of go back on the story they go like no that, that happened and yeah 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 life. we we have conducted now i study with 280 mm-hmm. people who had near-death experience in brazil okay and for example 85 percent 10 years later is still affirmed that this was real and there is there are even very interesting studies to conduct in Europe, in European one in United States, comparing the quality of the memories of the near-death experience description, and they compare this description, the quality of these memories, with another memory of a, a real important life event of the person, sure. and uh, imagined event. Yeah. Okay. And there are some scales that investigate the quality or the precision of the memory. And can you, it's interesting because the three studies found that uh, the memories of near-death experiences scored higher in the quality of memory than the memories for the real events. And of course, much more than the imaginative events. Wow. So even these scores are in line with the claims of uh, patients that you were having a real experience. Okay. So this is, because like when I when I had first started looking at the mind body problem like in undergrad, people were like, "You should look at near death experiences." I just kind of wrote it off as like, "No, nah, that's 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 like that's, that's not significant stuff." There's no real research on it. But the stuff I've been reading more recently, some of these different books, and then your own papers, that this is a game changer for me. So I I don't know. I need to think about this some more. Um, but we won't be thinking about it more just on this episode. So let's get to the next topic. So another thing you've looked at are mediums. So this kind of spiritual experience of, of mediums. So like, tell us what a medium is. Uh, like, are these people just a bunch of charlatans? Mm-hmm. Or is there something we can actually learn about the relationship between the mind and the brain here? Okay, uh, we, we define me- me- medium actually comes from the word uh, that is intermediate between okay. the spiritual realm and medium come from, from this sense. They, they, they are in the medium, they are in the medium, they are in the intermediates between the spiritual realm and our corporeal realm. And so we define mediums as people who claim to be in touch or under the control of some kind of spiritual or non-material entity. Okay? And this uh, this experience actually are widespread mm. throughout history and cultures. Mm-hmm. This Because this spiritual entity could be ancestors, could be uh, deceased people, could be uh, gods, could be many uh, angels, all, all these people we could understand mediums. But also there are uh, the idea, more restrictive view of mediums that would be the people who claim to be in touch with deceased people. Okay. So uh, I think these are more relevant to the possibility of the understanding of mind-brain relationship in this sense. For example, there, are, there have been studies actually for 150 years, 
on scientific investigation of mediumistic experiences and if they can actually provide some evidence for survival of consciousness after death. Oh, wow, okay. One of the, the pioneers, some of the pioneers were related to Cambridge. They founded the Society for Psycho Research. Mm-hmm. Actually, they involved some of the most bright minds in, scientific, in science and philosophy in the end of 19th century and early 20th century, like William James, Charles Richer, um, Henri Bergson, several Nobel laureates were involved yeah. on that. So uh, there are very interesting studies about if mediums are actually able to get some sort of anomalous information, that means information that they could not reach by their regular senses, uh-huh. yeah. and information that would be related to some deceased person and even reproduce the personality or even some skills of these persons. So, of course, mediumship has also been uh, subject to fraud, so people who take advantage of this. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are also many people who are mediums who uh, even don't make money or anything that they see this as, for example, as a spiritual charitable enterprise, for example. Okay, so if I go with the working assumption that all of these people are a bunch of charlatans, they're just trying out to like steal my money, that wouldn't explain all of the all of the facts that you are you you observe. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, yeah, first of all, uh, is that uh, in many cases, uh, mediums do not have any financial gain or even prestige or or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is one point. The second point is there has been controlled, well-controlled studies showing that mediums uh, have produced information above chance. Uh, even there, there has been very well-controlled studies nowadays showing that they prom- they have reached some sort of information that are not expected in by fraud or mm-hmm. just guess and. William James, for example, William James dedicated 30 years to study of mediumship, and he investigated a very famous uh, Bostonian medium, Miss Leonor Piper. Okay, and and he, he said that after 30 years of study, he was that deeply convinced that she was able to produce something that could not be explained in a regular way. That's that's interesting because because I often think of James as you know working on like religious experience and these kind of issues and psychology and philosophy, but I often forget about his fascination with mediums. So that's that's an interesting uh, part of the story of his life that I often forget. So that's so for thirty years he was working on this. Yeah, that's it. But it, it was not just a side interest. Yeah. actually, it was one of his major interests. Actually, okay, and actually, it his studies with mediums impact a lot his psycho his psychology and his philosophy. Okay, so that's so yes, yeah, so this is not something to just write off. This is an yeah. important part of modern or a contemporary philosophy of mind and and psychology. Okay, so I've got one final topic I want to I want to talk to you about. So reincarnation. So in one of your papers, you talk about reincarnation and setting like some of the, like the alleged memories of past lives. And so I would imagine that evidence of reincarnation, like that, would be evidence that maybe we're not identical to our brains. But what have these studies shown? Like, is there good evidence that some people are remembering past lives? Similar to, to, for example, to all the other experience, near-death experience and mediumship and reincarnation uh, belief has been uh, also widespread in different cultures in different times. And in the past uh, 
50 years, let's say, uh, this subject has been uh, subject has been submitted to rigorous scientific investigation. Uh, the founder of this research line was Ian Stevenson from the University of Virginia. He was a full professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia in USA. And uh, he started to investigate children who claim to remember previous lives. Mm. Okay. And since then, different researchers have investigated this topic. And there has been cat catalogued more than 2,000 cases of children around the globe claiming that they remember previous lives. Usually, uh, these cases have patterns around the globe. Usually, as soon as children start to speak, they start to speak about a alleged previous life, two years old, something like that. Oh. They start talking about a previous life. They claim that uh, they lived in such city, they had such names, they died usually violently. And, for example, sometimes they can have a birthmark. They say, oh, I was killed by a shot in this place and things like that. Okay, it could be just imagination of children. Sure. But uh, there are many good cases where they can, f they can track these claims and find uh, a deceased personality who fits it. And a personality that the family of the children has no contact previews that they don't have any knowledge about these persons. And very specific information have been provided. For example, exactly like this, the names, uh, the mode of death, the, the, the hobbies. Usually the students make about 20 different claims about uh, previous lives. And in good case, for example, about 18 of these claims are, are precise. So, and even the birthmarks, there are several studies Dozens of, of cases showing a striking similarity between birthmarks and the, the wounds that caused the death in, in, in the alleged previous personality, hmm. even comparing with uh, autopsies reports and uh, from, from the, the body. So, uh, so this is another interesting, um, sort of investigation that also adds uh, how spiritual experiences uh, can help us to enlarge our understanding of mind-brain relationship. Okay, so to make sure I'm, I'm getting this just right, so so you could say these kids—they're just imagining things because that's what kids do. Um, yeah. But it, but if but that wouldn't explain all the different phenomena you're finding. Yeah. No. Definitely not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the level of accuracy of hundreds of these cases cannot be explained away just as imagination or the children got this information from TV or journals. All these hypotheses have been investigated in different cases mm -hmm. and they, they can explain many cases, but many cases also cannot be explained away so easily. Okay, so you're able to weed out a bunch to say, okay, that's just imagination or they just heard this story from family or TV, but there's these other cases where you're like, we we can't explain it through these Yeah, these that's ways. the point. Because, uh, of course, any rigorous investigation of mediumship or mm -hmm. near-death experience or reincarnation case, of course, we should start by the more conventional explanations. Sure, that's how science should mm -hmm. proceed. We first should start, oh, it's just uh, a casual, uh, 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 by chance they, they, they got the right uh, information or it's fraud or it's just imagination, whatever. Mm -hmm. So all these um, hypotheses are raised first, 
and they after excluding them it's necessary to move right. forward yes i think that's the point science should be like this it should be open to all sorts of experience and of hypothesis but at the same time very rigorous i yeah. think this is the way that we should proceed because science is not to be committed to a specific previous theory of human being of nature or whatever it, it we should be we should respect the, the facts, the evidence, and, and try to, to make sense of them and adapt our theories to the, to, the, to the evidence, not the opposite. Well, on that note, I want to say thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on philosophical theology.